Uh, we're continuing this evening with another entry in our series, just talking about biblical theology. Uh, another, I would say, perhaps groundwork uh, lesson that we have tonight, laying some more groundwork for uh, sort of uh, proving and also establishing, but also seeing how biblical theology is done. Um, Hopefully you see by now that biblical theology, as we have come to learn about it, is not a superficial, it's not or even an optional discipline for you and I, for anyone who would say that they are a disciple of Jesus. This is something that I think we're also striving to bring to your minds through the Sunday School Hour, through our discussion on systematic theology. But uh, even here, I want to stress again that being a disciple of Jesus means engaging in theology. And this is not something that, again, as we've pointed out, as we've tried to express, is not a, 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 an academic study. This is not something that's just reserved for uh, special people who are learning about stuff in seminary or whatever. Um, being a disciple means being a theologian. It means diving in the word and studying the word of truth. As we've seen and as we've iterated on a number of occasions, it means rightly dividing the word of truth. And I think we can understand that all of our Christian life, all of it revolves around this word that we have in front of us. The importance of Scripture can't be stressed enough. The Bible, indeed, is our authority. It's our only source uh, that we are invited to go to to grow in our knowledge of God himself. And you see, that's the amazing thing that's happening through this this this. Uh, sort of umbrella thing that we could call theology, what's happening? Well, God is inviting us to draw closer to himself. We see this uh, right away where when Jesus, of course, is referred to as the declaration of the Father. If you you don't have to go there, but if you read John 1.18, it talks about the fact, well, we can just go there. We have time. Um, John 1, at at the end of this, or not the end, but sort of in the middle of this wonderful opening chapter of of the Gospel of John, I love how John sort of concludes this this entry um, as he's been describing Jesus, introducing us to Jesus, the Word become flesh. And notice what he says about him in verse 18. John says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So here we have this wonderful little verse where, wherein John tells us, and actually you could, uh, that made him known, essentially is saying Jesus has made him, made God known to us. He has declared God to you and me. He is, we could quite easily say even that too, that he is the exposition of God to us in flesh and blood. That's really what he is, the heart of of God is on display with the life and death of Jesus. All throughout his work, all throughout his ministry, all throughout his words. Everything that Jesus did was demonstrating, was making known to you and to me who the Father is. And part of that work that Jesus has accomplished means then inviting those who repent into and, and, and believe to, yes, have a share in that, in that kingdom of God, but also to be invited to learn and know and grow in their knowledge of God. This making known of the Father to you and me and Jesus 
This is what we are invited to continue doing in and by faith. That's what the gospel is, by the way. Just to put it another, another way on it. Yeah, it, it, it delivers us from sin and it gives us righteousness. But even then at the same time, the gospel is an open invitation for every single sinner to enjoy and to enjoy forever unending closeness with God. That's what it's about. It's drawing us close and then continually drawing us close forever. It never stops. There's never going to be a day when you get close enough to God. That is a, a draw that will always keep on going. That, that good news that Jesus declares by his life and death and resurrection, that good news that of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is preserved for us in the pages of these words, it is that very declaration that draws sinners, that welcomes sinners and weary, frustrating rebels to find a rest in Jesus, as Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You find that rest in him, and that rest is a, a continual, never-stopping welcome to continue drawing close to him. That's, that's what we find in Jesus. That's what Jesus invites us into. I love that verse. Go with me to Ephesians 4. And we're going to get back to Acts, I promise. Uh, Ephesians 4, a wonderful passage that I think uh, talks about so many different things that maybe one day we should unpack. But um, Ephesians 4, notice verse 15 as he's describing uh, church and church ministry and church life, Christian life. Notice what he says. Well, let's back up. Um, where do we even begin here? Let's, let's back up um, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and, the, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So here we have a really important, important note to see all of these offices of ministry. They have one significant goal. They're equipping the church to do the work of the ministry by building them up in Christ, notice he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, so instead, instead of all of these other things, instead of, uh, of yes, again, as we talked about last week, Instead of, of approaching the body of Christ with human cunning, with our own ingenuity, with our own aptitude and excellence and, and our eloquence, instead of all that stuff, because what does that result in? It results in very flimsy, very uh, flaky, very uh, sort of uh, uh, unstable, it results in an unstable body, as he says, tossed to and fro. Instead of all that, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. You see, he's inviting all of these believers. Yes, all of the, 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 the church ministers, those who are given the calling to declare the word, the apostles, the teachers, the preachers, the evangelists and such, they are given the call to, yes, build up the body by what? By inviting people to grow up into Christ. And yet at the same time, the church is invited and yes, even given the invitation to find all of their growth where? Into 
Christ. It brings us back again to this same thing we've been emphasizing here at the opening of this, is just our trajectory for the Christian life is growth into Christ. And guess what? That's what the Bible is all about. Why is the Bible all about Jesus? Because that is the only thing that is ever going to get sinners to stop their sinning and to grow up into Christ and to live like Christ in their everyday life. It's always about Jesus. That's not a Sunday school answer. I mean, it is. It's the answer you can give for everything. And that's not meant to be cliche. It's meant to be the truth. The Bible is about Jesus. And the Bible invites us to see that it is all about Jesus. And that it is uh, this wonderful calling that we have been given through the Word, through the Spirit, that invites us to, yes, see that it's all about Jesus and to always be rejoicing in that fact. That's what faith is. It's not just a momentary decision where, you get a, um, where you're given a, a sort of divine get-out-of-jail-free card. It's an invitation to a lifelong journey of finding Jesus to be your all, of, of learning and, and, and understanding to the disparity between who you are as a sinner and who God is as the one and only Holy One. See, that's what the Word also tells us. It tells us that, again, we can't save ourselves, we can't redeem ourselves, we can't fix ourselves. But there's one who can, and he's the one that this whole thing is all about. See, again, this is what biblical theology affords us to do. It affords us to see how God has providentially worked in all of the ages of the past to reveal himself to our forefathers, to all of the people who have preceded us. And he's revealed just how desperate they were for his saving grace. And likewise, just how willing he is and and was to be gracious to even those who don't deserve it. That's sort of the pattern that you see all throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament included. You're seeing God deal with desperate people in a way that is patient and willing to receive people that don't deserve mercy into his arms. And we're seeing that pattern unfold over and over and over again. All throughout the Bible, we see that pattern. Even the people that we understand as biblical heroes. One of the, th- one of the things I would love, and we're, we'll, we'll get there um, eventually, I promise. But the life of Abraham is always this one that we have in our mind's eye as just like the perfect, perfect life. And if you actually look at the way that he is introduced to the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that God is going to bless him and use him to bless the nations and all those sorts of things, he goes on this up and down roller coaster ride of faith all throughout those decades. God gives him a promise no kid he gets he gets concerned so he he forces a way for him to have a kid and that opens up a whole another world of problems and then and then he's he's given that promise again and then he pretends that his his wife is his wife and that leads to a problem you can read all of these different chapters and you can read about Abraham's faith and the faith of Abraham is something that we should find as our example, but even Abraham is shown to us to be what? A desperate man who is treated with grace even when he didn't deserve it. And that pattern repeats. Abraham, Jacob for sure, 
David. All of these characters that we find, they have the same sort of life story in some ways. That's what biblical theology is trying to show us. There is a single story that we've been invited to read, invited to study, invited to, yes, even not find ourselves in it, but to find out that we're not that much different. We're desperate, and yet God treats us with patience. Again, the Bible is the record of that. It's a record of a story that's concerned with Christ, and that's who Jesus is. He's the embodiment of God's concern for people who are desperate. And I think it's amazing. Can you, uh, this is the, something that uh, Brother Jason was introducing this morning in Sunday school on bibliology, that God has preserved that story in the pages or on your phone if you have it in front of you. <laughs> He's preserved it for us. Thousands of years later, we're reading about God's direct involvement in the human race, in this world, to make sure that everyone knows how he has chosen to reveal his glory in the most amazing way possible through his son Jesus. And yet, thousands of years later, we are still grappling with the same lessons that they were learning 4,000 years ago. Isn't it amazing that you can read about people in the Bible and it's like, man, I've been there. And yeah, we don't have some of the same problems and they don't have some of the same problems that we do. But there's a common thread throughout Genesis 1 to 2023. Well, I guess I should say Genesis 3 to 2023. And the common thread is sin, which is just to say the common thread is desperation. and And the common hope is the fact that God has given us a deliverer. He has given us a help in his son, Jesus. I think it's it's important for us, again, to just understand that these characters in the scriptures aren't that much different from us. They had different cultural values, perhaps. They had different ways that they went about doing certain things. Yes, it was a quote-unquote different world than ours in some ways, but in other ways, they're just like us. They're desperate for a God who will treat them with patience. And God reveals just how patient he is through this wonderful story that he has preserved. And I think what's amazing about this story is the fact that, and I think we've emphasized this on previous occasions in different venues, but what's so fascinating about this word that God has preserved, this revelation of who he is, of what his character is like, of what his heart is, and what he truly cares about the most. What is most fascinating about that is that it is at once the most simple book of all, as well as being the most complex. Because there have been thousands upon thousands of academic essays by PhDs and scholars and doctors of ministry uh, going into the Bible and parsing and diagramming and studying and writing and investigating all kinds of different truths about its doctrine that it presents. And yet at the same time, the message of the Bible can be understood by a five-year-old. That's what's so amazing. There will never be a day when there will be uh, all of the academic essays that we could write about the Bible will have been published. And yet at the same time, every five-year-old from now to 2050 will be able to understand what the Bible means, what it says. I know we don't have to, I'm not 
trying to say by this class and by systematic theology, I'm not trying to say that you have to become scholars who write dissertations. That's not the point. But part of being a disciple includes this delightful task of seeing this word is an open invitation to an unending journey of growing in theological knowledge. And that should be exciting. It should be exciting. This discipline of theology is for a lifetime. You're never, sorry, you're never going to get a graduation certificate of Christian discipline. (laughs) I don't have that at the end of this. But actually, that's really awesome. Because we can always be learning more about this God who has revealed himself in his word. That should thrill us. It shouldn't scare us. Maybe it, should, maybe it scares us sometimes. Because we, if, you know, sometimes where there's like, uh, so recently I've been walking through antique stores. We went with my sister and brother-in-law and I went with my mom. And, and sometimes those stores just daunt me and stress me because there's almost too much to look at. Like if you've been in the stores in Lewisburg and they just have all of the stuff in all of those little cubbies and there's just almost too much to look at that my brain doesn't even know where to begin looking. I'm looking for something. I'm looking for old books. That's what I just try and pinpoint. But almost there's just too much to look at. And that's why I get super tired really quickly when I'm in storage as I'm trying to focus. Anyways, it, sometimes I think theology can be the same way. It's almost too much. It, we don't know where to begin. Well, the great thing is you can kind of begin anywhere. Maybe you should begin at the beginning with Genesis 1. I'm not telling you where to begin, but the, it, it's just, it's, it should be a thrilling thing. Don't let it dawn to you. That this task of theology will never be finished. There will never be an end date for it. And in a way, I think we should take our cue from the example of the Bereans. I want you to notice this. Look, go back to Acts 17. I knew we'd get there. Acts 17. This wonderful little story of this church at Berea, I think, is so fascinating. You see, after the turmoil, if you remember the story, Acts chapter 17 begins with Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. They begin preaching, and they begin preaching uh, the truth about Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. And then the riot starts, and there's a mob, and all of these guys, <laughs> baser men of, what's the King James? The King James has a wonderful way that it phrases that word um, in verse number 5, where it says, uh, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. I think it calls them lewd men of a baser sort. <laughs> um, um, lewd, yeah, fellows of the baser lewd fellows of the baser sort. There we go. Wonderful way that that is phrased. But just some rabble rousers. And they form this mob, as it says. And they just start getting everyone into a, fi- into a tizzy. And it's all about their preaching. And so Paul and Silas leave and, and, and they, they, they exit town, as it says in verse 10. And notice verse 10, the brothers, Paul and Silas, immediately sent, or the brothers of of Thessalonica immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they're escaping town, getting out of the way to to make sure that they're safe and sound out of harm's way. And I love the fact that they go roughly 40 miles to the southwest of Thessalonica and they go to Berea. And what do they do? And when they arrive, they went to the Jewish synagogue. They're getting persecuted and, and, and harassed for preaching, and they go to another place, and they keep on preaching. <laughs> but I love it was so fascinating about this little scene is that instead of friction, instead of resistance, this preaching is met with 
eagerness. Notice, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. This is almost unheard of at this point in Paul's ministry. He's been met with resistance on several occasions. You'll remember some of those frustrating uh, things that happened on their first missionary journey. The one uh, that sticks out to me is when at Lystra, and he's basically thrown out as if he was dead in, in chapter number 14. He's been familiar with the resistance and the vitriol and the animosity and even, yes, the outright violence that comes from his message, preaching Jesus that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one. He's the fulfillment of all of these scriptures. And what's so fascinating is instead of violence, what, is, what do we see happening here? An acceptance. The Bereans, were told, were more noble, which literally just translates to they were of noble birth or noble character. That was their demeanor. And so we just have this amazing confluence of events that you have to see. Because it would seem that The heritage of the Bereans was such that it allowed them to be more perhaps open to ideas or accepting of this truth. But that heritage, coupled with the Holy Spirit, culminated in this amazing moment where the gospel is preached and they receive it in an uncanny display of faith. And instead of like those in Thessalonica, instead of brutishly resisting the gospel with really without giving a a second thought, As those Jews were seen doing, they received the gospel with all eagerness. They heard the word, and immediately, as I love how it says, they went to examining the scriptures daily to see if those things were true. And all of that examination, all of that eagerness, what did it result in? Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. They are trusting Jesus everywhere. They're seeing that these things are true. These things that Paul is talking about, they have merit, not just that, but they have meaning for them. There's so many wonderful little things in this scene, and I think one of the things that sticks out to me is just how out of the way this little town was. Berea was not a town that everyone would have gone to. It was out of the way. It was kind of in the sticks, if you will. But even in the the sticks, so to speak, these Bereans, they demonstrate more faith and humility than nearly any other location that Paul traveled to. And I think what's so amazing about this is just the precise fact that this little town wasn't on Paul's radar initially. Again, remember, Paul and Silas only went to Berea because they were forced out of Thessalonica. I don't, I don't think at all that if Thessalonica was a more prominent city that perhaps more, had more resources and had more availability to, and, and more importance and significance to get a church there, so to speak. And of course they do, but they're met with the resistance and they're forced to leave before they can get the ministry started like they wanted to. Earlier than they expected. So in a way, from the outside looking in, you could see this as a failure on Paul's part. He's not able to reach the people that he wanted to reach. His mission in Thessalonica appears stunted. But see the see what's happening? It might appear as if Satan's winning. He's getting a small victory. 
He's forcing Paul out of Thessalonica, and he's forcing Paul to stop preaching the gospel. But what is going on behind the scenes? God is already at work to make sure the, Berea, the Bereans got the gospel. <laughs> providentially working so that people who are desperate to receive truth are given that truth through Paul. It was, it was so, I would say it's serendipitous, but of course it's through the Holy Spirit. God is always working. Uh, I was at a pastor's conference this weekend and one of the speakers got up and I had it a long time ago decided to uh, speak on this particular chapter. And guess what? He opens to Acts chapter 17. And I was like, oh, this is great. I get to hear how he's making this point. And he, made, he, he said this very thing. Phil Newton was preaching. And I was just amazed by this thought. Satan thought he was running the gospel out of Thessalonica, but God was working to ensure the Bereans would hear that same gospel. That's the trajectory of God's word always. And this is the, a recognizable pattern throughout Scripture. Whenever the devil thinks that things are going his way, you can be sure that God is up to something better. You can be sure of that. And even here, you're seeing that take place where Paul and Silas, ministry stunted, and yet God had a better plan. He had a better thing that he was wanting Paul to, to, to enjoy, but also the Bereans to receive. He wanted to have this fruitful display of gospel grace happen. And again, so whatever the devil thinks that his plans are working out, God's working out something better. And again, just as a little side note, there's no better example of that than the cross. I couldn't help but think, I was jotting all these things down when this preacher was talking. I was just writing all these notes. And I couldn't help but think about that wonderful quote from Augustine, the early church father, who calls the cross Satan's mousetrap. Have you ever heard of that? Augustine says this, The devil exalted when Christ died, but by this very death of Christ, the devil is vanquished as if he had swallowed the bait in the mousetrap. He rejoiced in Christ's death like a bailiff of death. What he rejoiced in was then his own undoing. The cross of which, the cross of the Lord was the devil's mousetrap. The bait by which he was caught was the Lord's death. I love that thought. That idea that Satan thought he was winning, but God was already up to something better. And the same sort of thing is happening here. As those in, the, in Berea are given the word of truth because God the Father providentially made it happen. His providence orchestrates this opportunity. Because he knew who was in Berea and he knew that they needed the word. And this shows us two amazing things. So two things really quick that these Bereans really show us, that I think speak to us here this evening in terms of our engagement with biblical theology. Notice in this passage again that we could say this, we could say this, that those who are indwelt, so those who have the Holy Spirit by faith, they are invited, and yes, indeed, they have the responsibility to check any messenger who delivers the word to them, no matter what their stature is or what their prominence is. So this, again, notice, now these Jews, it says in verse 11, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. 
So they're not, again, they're not blindly accepting what Paul says. They're saying, okay, Paul, I hear what you're saying. Let me check that against what God's word says. We've talked about this before, and I just can't help but emphasize it again. Just don't take my word for it. When I'm teaching, whenever anyone is teaching, by the way, whenever anyone is opening up the word and saying, here is a word from the Lord, you better check that against the word that's in front of you. That's not going to get you to doubt every messenger of the word, but that is your responsibility just as much as it is mine to deliver the word in faith. It is, it is our responsibility as a church to understand and open up the scriptures and say, what does God's word say? And the joyful thing is that when you're checking the word against what I'm saying the word says, and both of them are saying the same thing, that's when rejoicing happens, right? <laughs> say, yeah, I see it. How awesome is our God? Again, we've talked about this, but again, just to emphasize, it, it becomes a recipe for disaster, not just the fact of no one having their Bibles when they come to church, but it comes a recipe for disaster when no one is checking what the preacher is saying against what God's word says. No wonder these preachers can go off on all of these tangents and go off on all these rabbit trails and lead their people down a road of just theological wandering. Again, go back to Ephesians, being tossed to and fro. How does you get tossed to and fro? By having unchecked theology being spewed from pulpits. That's not checked by anyone. Because, again, as we emphasized last week, people don't, uh, aren't equipped, they're not reminded perhaps of the fact that you have the same Holy Spirit that I have. (laughs) Don't let, don't, uh, I'm not saying that you're doing this, but I think sometimes we think that preachers have like, a little bit better access to God's Holy Spirit than you do? That's not true. (laughs) We have the same Holy Spirit. I've been given a certain calling, perhaps, that's different than your calling, but I don't have special access to God that you don't have. You have the same Spirit. The same Holy Spirit dwells inside you as in me. Which, again... What does that mean? My authority, uh, as I stand and speak this word, any preacher's authority, it's borrowed authority. My authority is on loan from God. Because as soon as the, 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 the preacher or pastor starts to revel and relish in his own authority, that's when disaster happens. My primary responsibility is to faithfully and tenderly and responsibly care for your theolo- theological needs, your spiritual needs. And, and, and how does that happen? By opening up the authoritative word of God, preaching it authoritatively, but then getting out of the way to allow for God's authoritative Holy Spirit to truly bring that word home into our hearts and minds. Because you see, that's where the authority lies. The authority is not with me. It's with God's word. That, this is our ultimate authority. Not my word. This word. The authority of any preacher is not his own. It resides, it resides with the spirit in the word as it's declared by faith. So what do you see here? You see a congregation of believers receiving the word, investigating the word. That word, again, examine, it literally means to scrutinize or to put to question. Again, pause and think. A church 
is scrutinizing the sermon of Paul, the apostle. The guy that we think is like the best missionary ever. And indeed he is, probably. But again, the stature doesn't matter. The prominence doesn't matter. What matters is whether the word is being delivered by faith. Whether it's being delivered in in faith in accordance to the word of God. And yes, indeed, we can say if we are reading the same word under the same influence of the same Holy Spirit, we are more than able and equipped to examine that declared word. And yes, that's how growth happens. How do you grow up in every way into Christ? You receive a sermon that's preached to you and you examine it according to God's word. You say, man, I can't believe this is true. This is truth. Not because a preacher says it in a fancy way, but because God's word says it. That's what these Bereans are doing. They're not just blindly, ignorantly shutting their brains off. Like we talked about last week. They're not consuming. They're not just sitting and consuming like you're watching Netflix, binging information. What are they doing? They're receiving and going and investigating. They're scrutinizing. They're sifting But I love the fact, too, that not only do we have this God-given, Holy Spirit-empowered responsibility to examine what that declared word, what that word being declared to us says, but I love the fact as well that the, the other thing I want you to see just, and we'll close, Paul's sermon, where's he preaching from? Where's Paul preaching from? Well, we're not told. I'm not trying to get you to give me a verse and reference. Paul's sermon from which he was preaching. And the scriptures that the Bereans were pouring over, what was it? None other than the Old Testament. He wasn't preaching from the Gospels. They hadn't been written yet. Paul wasn't preaching from Hebrews. He wasn't preaching from Romans to make his case that Jesus is the true and better Adam. What was he preaching from? He was preaching like Jesus tells us in Luke 24. He was preaching from Moses and all the prophets. And what are they checking? They're checking Moses and all of the prophets to find out what? That yes, indeed, Jesus is the Christ. He's preaching and they're reading from an Emmaus perspective, if you will. And the point is, they're finding Paul's words to be true. Verse 12 again, many of them therefore believed. Yes, it's true. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Christ of God. And they're, they're delighted in that fact. They're rejoicing. They're believing. They are, they are reveling in this good news. This is not to say that the New Testament is not important. But it is to say... That sometimes, and as we've seen, and hopefully you've seen this before, Jesus doesn't just show up in the Gospels. Jesus is everywhere. He's all throughout the Word. Not only does he show up in certain scenes, you know, Joshua 5, he shows up as the captain. Uh, uh, Daniel chapter 3, he shows up in the, in the furnace. But all throughout, we've been made to see glimpses of Jesus. As we've said before, there's times where Jesus appears in absence, which is to say we see an an absence and a need for Christ because things are so bad, (laughs) judges. Other times we see Jesus in his presence and sort of through the life of other people. So you can, you can look to uh, certain figures and say, man, look at how good they were, but Jesus is going to be even better. 
But all throughout, the whole point is what? All of these scriptures point us to Jesus. Paul is here doing just that. And the Bereans are finding that to be true. They are exercising discipline in biblical theology. I don't, I don't think that's reading into the text. I think that's exactly what the text is finding to be true. Whenever it talks about in Acts, when it says they preached the word, that is shorthand. It's just sort of, uh, sort of uh, a, a little shorthand euphemism for the gospel, for the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one that all of the Old Testament talked about. So Paul is delivering this sermon. They're finding it to be true. And they are filled with this zeal, with this eagerness, with this joy. As all of this is implanted into their hearts and minds. And I love the fact that you can see the change. Because even when the Thessalonians, when they come down, these Jews from Thessalonica, they come down and they stir up more trouble. The brothers are just kind of casting it off. They send Paul away. They understand here again. They understand that, that Paul was not for them. He had a different mission at work. But it's amazing that Paul was here for just a short time, profitably sent there because of an uproar, and that uproar sends him away again. But even in that short little window, what happens? An amazing revival, if you will, occurs at Berea. Why? Because God providentially orchestrated it to be so. I think it's amazing that these Bereans received this word, but also that they check this word, that they receive the Holy Spirit, and they find all these things to be true. I think we should truly indeed model our approach to biblical theology after this church at Berea. Receiving the word with eagerness and examining it with faith by the Holy Spirit, finding these things to be true and rejoicing having our hearts built up, having our faith strengthened and made certain as we grow up every way into Christ. You see, these Bereans were given this, again, they were invited, as we said earlier, they were invited to see that they could draw close to this God who spoke everything into existence. They could draw close, close and closer to this God. This one who invites them to draw near and find him to be their all, their all. And in that invitation, they found so much thrill and, and, and zeal and excitement. Are we just as excited to rightly divide the word of truth? That's what I, I hope that you're being able to see. As we continue studying biblical theology, we're being invited to see Yeah, all of this points to Jesus, but all of this is drawing us close to Jesus. Jesus wants those who enjoy just sitting at his feet, kind of like Mary and Martha, just sitting at the feet of Jesus. When you open the word, that's what you're being invited to do once again, over and over again, sitting at the feet of Jesus and being drawn close to this one who is Revealed to be your one and only hope. Let us pray.